All right. We're official now, so quit saying all that secret stuff. <clears throat> Let's see what we got here. Genesis 14. All right, let's do a quick review, right? Just so that we know that we're all on the same page. So we talked about in verse one, these are the four kings. And we talked about how, here, I'll turn this way so it actually makes sense. Israel's over here. And then you got the Dead Sea and little mountains. And then you go way over here, like Iraq and Iran and all this. That's where these guys are from. Way over here. The five kings, again, we've got Israel, and then on the western, or I'm sorry, the eastern border of Israel, there's the Dead Sea, and then some, some cities that are over here on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and those are the five kings, they're down around this way, right? Those are the five kings that are going against them in verse number two. We call, uh, so the first group, the ones from way out east, we're calling those the ACT, and that was because of their little acronym of their names. And then the second group, we're calling them the Bubba's because they're from, that's their little acronym, right? And I don't want to say their names over and over. So got to give me a little room there. But then we finished up in verse three with this sentence. And all these joined forces in the Valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. And what we were saying is, okay, so what they're telling us is these four kings and their collective army and these five kings and their collective army, they met in battle at the very southern tip of the Dead Sea. Okay? But now that they've said that, we're going to get to verse 4, and what we're actually doing is going back in time to set things up a little bit. Okay? So just so you're not confused by the text, that's where we're headed. So Rick, read us verse 4. Uh, they were subject to... Yeah, that guy with a big C. Tito Lamor there you for go. 12 years, and in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, uh-oh, excuse me. Yeah, that's it. So perfect. So, so here's the backstory. Somehow... These five kings that we're talking about here in the valley around the Dead Sea, they had been serving these other kings from hundreds of miles away for over a decade. What did that look like? What did it mean? Well, we don't really know. Obviously, there had to be, I'm sure, at least some form of tribute, whether that's in uh, uh, produce of the land or... Uh, like wealth, money, you know, valuable things, or even people, right? We don't know, but they had been serving them for over a decade already. And it's so weird because they're so far away. It's really far. And remember, they didn't have cars and stuff back then, right? It's a weird thing. So uh, they get to the 13th year and they finally decide, you know what? We are going to rebel. But everybody knows what's the problem with the number 13. <laughs> I mean, come on. That's not very lucky, right? So they chose the wrong year to rebel. That's what I'm thinking. And then, you know, again, we don't know what does that mean they decided to rebel. Does that just mean, you know, like in A Bug's Life, we're not going to give you 
the, the seeds anymore? We're not going to give you the stuff anymore? Or did they actually start, you know, little skirmishes and, you know, killing people, collecting? I don't know, but they decided to fight back. So, David, how about, how about you read, <laughs> sorry about the names, and you're welcome to just do their capital letters, uh, in verses 5 and 6. I'll give it a shot. Okay. Kind of okay. In the 14th year, Shadorlamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphim in Aster, I'm not going to say that one, <laughs> the Zuzum in Ham, the Emim in Shabbath Kerithim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Perrin on the border of the wilderness. Okay. All right. So, a lot of big stuff in there, but let's try and focus in on the important bits. So, it's the next year. So, now it's the 14th year, right? They've been serving these kings, but the act, the four from out east, they start defeating people in this area, right? So, they, they rebelled, and so now they're coming to put the hammer down, put their foot on their necks, right? So, who are we talking about? And this is amazing. They defeated the Rephaim. Anybody know anything special about the Rephaim? They're giants. They're giants. Yeah, they're giants. And how about the Zuzim? Anybody know anything about them? Also giants. How about the Emim? Anybody know anything about them? Also giants. Right? So we're talking giants, we're talking bigger than the average guy. Yeah. Yeah. I'll talk about that in a second because it's it's a little bit um there's varying information, but we'll talk about it. How about the Horites, the last group? They are from Edom. Uh and I don't know if you know the Edomites, they are the descendants of Esau, Jacob and Esau, right? But the Horites are from Edom. That's before Esau's clan kind of takes over, just so you know. But is there anything else that we know about the Horites? We don't know if they were giants. We don't. But a lot of scholars look at this and go, well, you listed giants, 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 and then somebody that we don't know about. And so they assume that they were also giants. Why? did they come in and start defeating a bunch of people groups who were giants? Yeah, what, what was the message? Yeah, and your greatest warriors, they're nothing to us. We're going we're gonna to get rid of them all, right? So if we can beat... See, you could look at it different ways. They could have come in and said, well, let's do it the easy way. Let's just wipe out all the places where the people aren't very warrior-like and, you know, just take the easy ones, right? But it doesn't send the same message. If you really have power, if you really have strength, you go in and you wipe out their biggest, best guys, you actually have to do a lot less fighting, right? Harder fight, presumably, but you can do a lot less of it and you send the message. Hey, if we can defeat them, you know we can defeat you, right? So that's a big thing. Now, um, let's see, what's the little bit here? 
Uh, now, here's the part back to what Bernard was talking about, okay? There are a lot of discrepancies in your scripture, but speaking archaeologically and even historically in terms of available texts outside the Bible, all kinds of things like that, how big were these so-called giants? Well, the average male of this time, this culture, was a little bit shorter than we think of today. I'm pretty sure in America, average height is something like 5'9", 5'10", something in that range, right? Back then, the average height was 5'4", 5'5", for a male, okay? So when they say giants, and they are somewhere between 6 and 7 feet tall, and it's the whole clan like that, they called that giants, right? And you got to admit, if, if you're 5'4 or 5'5, five five, you're probably, I don't know, I mean, they had to work for a living, probably didn't eat as well as we do, all that kind of stuff. So they're probably in the 125 to 150 pound range. You get somebody who's between six and seven feet, and they're more like 200 to 250, right? I mean, that's a big discrepancy. It's a really big deal. And so those were the typical giants. Now, just for clarity, we could look and see. Let me make sure I get this right. Um, oh, I didn't put my references. Some stories have giants as tall as 9 to 10 feet. Okay? 9 to 10 feet tall. So... Uh, the, the difficulty with those is the archaeological evidence. Wherever that guy's buried, they haven't found him yet. It doesn't mean he didn't exist, but that happens in the Bible all the time. It talks about things, everybody acts like it's a big deal, like it's a fantasy, and then lo and behold, eventually they discover something, and it's like, oops, the Bible was right. <laughs> okay, So they really could have had guys that tall, and then there's one particular guy, King Og, or Og, depending on, you know, whatever. He was an Amorite. His bed was 13 and a half feet long. Now, is that just because he wanted a big fancy bed and, you know, whatever? Maybe. Or was it because he was like unbelievably tall? I don't know. Maybe. Right? We don't know. But it would be a lot more uh, useful for you when you're thinking about giants, you know, just go, look, you know, they were all Akeem Olajuwon or something. You know, who's another tall guy? Uh, I, I keep wanting to say Tony, but I don't want to call him out. <laughs> but, right, just, just think of normal tall guys. Even for us, if you walked into, I don't know, a town, or maybe you just went and visited another church, or whatever it was, some organization... And everybody in there was seven feet tall. You'd be feeling like, wow, <laughs> I'm, uh, I mean, this could be trouble if they're not nice, right? What, you know, what, what is it? So they were giants, all right? But anyway, the point is, they've come in from the east. And so here, let me draw you another picture. What did this look like? So again, Israel's over here. Aaron, I'll scoot up a little bit. Israel's over here. These guys are coming from way over here, hundreds of miles away. What they actually did was come in from the north and they worked their way down this valley 
wiping out people. They got to the bottom and they kind of went and did this little loop over here in southern Israel. And that's how they ended up back down at the southernmost tip of the Dead Sea. Okay? So that was their, that was their route. That was their plan. All right. Do I have anything else in here we care about? I don't think so. All right. John, verse 7. And then they turned back and went to Imish, that is Kedesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Ankamites as well as the Amorites, who were living there in Hazeton de Tamar. Yep. Your pronunciations on all this stuff is as good as mine, so don't worry about it. Say anything you want. Uh, so, all right. What, what is this telling us, though? So the Amalekites, first, they, they turned back and came to uh, En Mishpat, defeated the country of the Amalekites. Who are the Amalekites? Anybody know? They came from Esau. Kind of weird, right? I thought that was the Edomites. Well, there was more, right? The Amalekites also come from Esau. The Amalekites were the first to attack Israel when God was rescuing them from Egypt. I don't know if you remember that story. He pulls them out. The Egyptians, of course, are trying to attack them. They all die in the sea, right? But once they start moving outside uh, of the, uh, Egypt and they're you know, going where they're going, the Amalekites are the first ones to attack them. And they attack them without provocation, right? So there's that. Um, and this is also important. Later in Exodus... I'm sorry, not Exodus. When they enter the land, okay, when they finally get there, uh, if you remember, part of their job was, hey, you're going to go in and you're going to take over these cities. It's like, I'm giving you all of these cities as a gift. You've already got houses, you've already got walls, you've got all, so all you got to do is kick the people out of there and then that's all yours, Right? It's like a furnished home. Here you go, right? Well, some of those cities, if you've ever noticed, some are devoted to destruction. There's different ways that that's translated in English, but some of them are devoted to destruction or something like that. But some of them are not. Some of them are, hey, you can go in and, you know, take over and they can just sort of be your, your servants, Right? You can do that. But others of them, you had to kill men, women, children, animals. I mean, everything had to die. Right? Okay. The Amalekites, they were one of those. In the land, everything had to die. If you're looking for a reason, one of them could be that they attacked his people without provocation on the way out of Egypt. Right? They were being redeemed, and they were attacked. So it's a thought. The other one they mention here are the Amorites. Now, they had lots of battles with Israel over time. And uh, if I remember, shoot, I thought I put that down somewhere. The Amorites come from somebody we know, and then I didn't write it down. Sorry about that. But the point is, they also ended up being 
uh, devoted to destruction, right? So Israel had lots of battle with the Amorites, and when it came time for them to take over the land, the promised land, they were also devoted to destruction. So it's interesting that they're mentioned together, but it's also important to notice that right here in this story, they're kind of friendly with Abraham or Abram at this point, right? So it's, it's kind of like you got to get your, your, your head in the historical timeline. They're going to be bad guys, but right at this moment, they're not. Okay, so there's that. Uh, and then, oh, I already, def- I already told you about the route. Yeah. Okay, so we do that review. And remember in verse 3, we had said, hey, they were going to meet in battle down there at the southern tip of the Dead Sea, right? Well, now we get to verse 8 and 9, and we're actually going to be at the southern tip of the Dead Sea. This is back to verse 3, sort of, timeline. You want to read, Philip? I'll do it. All right, 8 and 9. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidon against Kedolamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Nation, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioth, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. My goodness. If you didn't already have little candies available, I would give you a prize. That was... It's like he knew what he was talking about, right? That was awesome. So here we are, back at verse 3. They're, gonna, they're now going to join in battle. And we've had all this buildup, right? Trying to help us understand, okay, war's about to happen. This is what's going on. I told you they were going to meet in battle. Well, here's what led to it. But then, I mean, it sounds like it's pretty intense, right? Here it comes. Get ready. But then you get to verse 10 and 11, and Philip, you did all that reading, and we're just done. We're going to look at verses 10 and 11 now. Terry? <laughs> 10 and 11. Yes, sir. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and went their way. Okay. So, you get all that buildup, and when the battle finally happens, yeah, so they ran, and uh, that was it. They were defeated. <laughs> I mean, it's really anticlimactic. But there's still some, some, some good stuff in here. Let's talk about this. Um, yeah, the, it, I mean, it was kind of like a, I don't know, the vision in my head was when your car tire rolls over ants or something like that. I mean, it just wasn't any battle at all. But just so you know, like my version says, uh, the Valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, right? Yours may say it a different way. Underneath on the Hebrew, it actually says they were pits, comma. Well, there's not even a comma there. It just says pits, pits, right? So what happens when a word is repeated in Hebrew? What is it telling us? Yeah, it's emphasizing. So if you imagine, if somebody said, oh yeah, you know what, there are bitumen pits all over down there, you would have one vision. 
But if somebody said, no, 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 there are pits, pits, right? All of a sudden, your imagination, the number of pits grows pretty dramatically, right? So that's what they're trying to get across here. Um, in mentioning the kings in battle, the king's army is assumed to be included, right? So, I mean, just because the way it's written is the kings entered into battle, right? It's, it's talking about their whole army, all that stuff. Just want to make sure that that's clear. And then the narrative suddenly leaves out three of the five kings. Now, it's reasonable to assume that all five were defeated and that the narrative is just kind of focusing in on the relevant parts, Sodom and Gomorrah. But, I mean, it's just weird. You're reading along and it's like, well, who got defeated? The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what happened to the rest of them, right? You just have to assume they were defeated as well. Uh, and then it says that they took all of Sodom and Gomorrah's possessions and provisions. So food and other stuff, presumably valuable stuff, right? And again, did they only take Sodom and Gomorrah's stuff? They probably took all five cities, unless, I don't maybe it was a geological thing, or I'm sorry, a geographical thing, where, well, Sodom and Gomorrah were close, so they went and stripped them of everything, but the others were too far away, and they just said, forget about it, you know, whatever. I don't know, maybe, but the narrative, just the other three just kind of disappear. Now it's Sodom and Gomorrah. Why would that be? From a storytelling perspective, What's that? They were the Sodom and Gomorrah's the biggest and greatest. Okay, they were the biggest and greatest. That's good. What? It's because we're going to learn at some point that Sodom and Gomorrah about to disappear. Yeah. Yeah. It's foreshadowing stories that are coming up. Right? So we're going we're gonna to narrow our focus to these two cities because they're going to be coming up in the next big story. Right? So there's that. But these people, <laughs> they're in a bad spot. I mean, could you imagine if you went home and today we'd have to say you've lost your job so you can kind of, you know, get in tune, but you go home and maybe your home is still there, but all your bank accounts are empty, all your stuff has been removed from your home, your land's been kind of messed up, you know, burned or something. Now what? What am I going to do? I'm starting from literally nothing, right? So they were in a bad spot. It's a bad spot. So let's keep going. Tony, how about you read verse 12? They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Yeah, there you go. So for some reason, these four kings, the act, as we've called them, they take Lot. Now, if you saw uh, Sunday when I was, uh, what is it, a little over a week ago, whatever, uh, what did they do to Lot? What was the, the verses that I read that had something to do with slavery? What, did we, what are they doing to Lot here? They're stealing him. It's, it's not a phrase. It's not the way we normally look at 
slavery or whatever, but it makes perfect sense. They stole Lot. They stole his life, right? Stole his freedom or whatever you want to say. And we know later God's very specific. He hates that, right? But that's what's going on here. For some reason, they steal Lot. And of course, all his possessions and stuff too. And we don't know who else they took. I mean, did they take, you know, the the king of Sodom? Or did they leave him behind? I mean, it's going to be kind of questionable later in the story. Why is the king of Sodom there? Is it because Abram rescued him or because he came to meet him? Right? But for some reason, he stole Lot. We don't know. Why? Um, Yet, anyway. We'll we'll see later. It wouldn't be unreasonable to think that others were taken, but the narrative is, is just kind of focusing on what's important for the story here, but we will see more here in just a little bit. So, I don't know, kind of a, kind of a big deal. So, you know what, I should stop. I'm, I kind of got in the mode. Anybody got any questions, comments about what we're, we're doing? Okay, all right. Let's go to John, verse 13. Okay, Todd's got a question. Well, just uh, in chapter 13, verse 12, uh-huh. Uh, Lot set up his tent near Sodom, but apparently he had moved in to Sodom. Right. Here in this verse, he was living in Sodom. Yeah. He had gotten closer to the heart of sin. Yeah, that's a really good point. We saw... Lot, Lot. <clears throat> yeah, Lot, we saw him, he's kind of bouncing around a little bit, being near many different cities, and he finally settled near Sodom. And then we know at the time when Sodom gets destroyed, he's living in the city. We know that. He's the guy going out to the gate and, you know, all that stuff. But Todd caught it. No, he'd already moved into Sodom at this point. So, yeah, he's, for whatever reason, he was really drawn to stuff he shouldn't have been drawn to. Yeah, that's good. All right, so where are we at? John, first, uh, is it 13 or 14? 13. 13, go. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Okay, so there you go. A couple of things to notice in here. This is really good. So somehow, one of the escapees, remember it said they met in the battle and basically everybody ran. You either fell in a pit or you ended up in the hills or whatever. But somebody knew to go tell Abram. Now, I don't know if you remember, let's get back to our map. This is such a great map. So you've got Israel over here and about halfway north-south, about in the middle, Abram is... He, he had been between Ai and Bethel, but he had moved down to Hebron, okay? So he's somewhere in the middle of the country. And remember, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, they're over here, kind of on the southeastern side of the Dead Sea. So it's pretty good distance. And they were split up because... The land couldn't sustain them all being together. Their herdsmen were fighting, all of those things. So who is this guy and how did he know, first of all, who Abram was, how to find him, 
right? That's kind of weird. You know, first you read it and it's like, oh, okay, somebody went and told Abram. Okay, good. Abram can help. But how? So he's probably a pretty good friend with Lot. I mean, you'd have to think. And then there's a number of possibilities. Lot may have shared a lot about his heritage and relation and stories about Abram, something like that. It could be that even though we see them split up, there may have been some sort of ongoing communication, interaction of some kind, whatever it might have been, right? But this guy, I mean, just imagine, I mean, you look at a map and it's like, yeah, you're going from over here, you know, over to there somewhere. How do you do that in real life? You start walking, where are you going to find this guy, right? So it's, it's kind of amazing that this happened at all. Uh, notice that um, one of Abram's friends, his name is Mamre. So the oaks of Mamre are the oaks that belong to a guy, Terebinth, oak, whatever. They belong to a guy named Mamre. And there's also a city or a town, a, a location called Mamre, which we might actually think, yeah, it could have been named after this guy, right? It doesn't have to be, but it could have been, right? So don't get confused. There are, in fact, two things, a person and a place, right? Same name. So that's a thing. Uh, and this Mamre was an Amorite. Remember, we just talked about them. They were one of the ones devoted to destruction. They were some of the bad guys. But at this point in the story, they're allies, okay? So... That's a a good thing to see. What else do we got? Mamre has a couple of others, Eshkol and uh, Aner, whatever. Um, The act had defeated the Amorites during their loop through southern Israel. Okay? So remember on the map, we said, here's Israel. Here's the, the valley where all the five kings were. And then we said, these guys came over, went down, through that valley, and then did a little loop over in southern Israel. So the the Amorites had been defeated during that loop through Israel. Okay, so Abram and Mamre and his brothers, they were all motivated to get these guys back. Okay? Uh, And, I mean, all of these things, they're kind of mentioning them as if they were, you know, teaming up, becoming allies, whatever. It's not super explicit, but we'll see it confirmed later, right? So there you go. Todd, verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Okay. Now, first of all, when we think of a full house, you know, I mean, my goodness, if you had a dozen people, you'd be thinking, we are a big family. This guy not only had 318, these were 318 men. In fact, it wasn't just 318 men, it was 318 trained men. So you remember back when I kept telling you, hey, they're trying to move all this stuff around and it's like moving a small town, right? Right? Abram's got a really big clan. 
So for Abram to be known, this kind of goes back to how on earth did that guy find Abram? Okay. For Abram to be known throughout the land may not have been all that strange because he's not from around here. So there's, there's that aspect, but also he's his own town, just kind of moving around wherever, everywhere that he would go, you know, people are talking about just like crazy. And remember his journey has taken him from the tip of Israel at the top, all the way through the bottom down to Egypt and then back up to the middle and then down a little bit. So he's had some opportunity to become known. So this guy could have been running around going, I'm looking for Abram, the Hebrew, or, you know, something. And people are going, oh, that's up that way, you know. So he, that's how he may have found his way around, right? So now you're able to kind of put some of these things together. How could these things be happening? So we got that. Um, let's see. Uh, so Abram decides that he is going to go after Lot. He wants to try to get Lot back. And now this is kind of, it makes it appear as though Abram is going it alone. Somehow he's, he's either forced to go it alone or choosing to go alone. And yet, just a moment ago, we mentioned Mamre and what was it, Eshkol or something, and Anair, whoever those guys were. So he's not entirely alone, but Abram, even if they hadn't joined him, Abram had set his mind. He was going to go do this thing. Now, just think about that for a second. This is four kings from hundreds of miles away who've been going through uh, close to Israel or near Israel, little parts of Israel, defeating people, all this kind of stuff. And Abram's like, all right, boys, leave the animals alone. I'm sure they'll be fine. We're going to war, right? I mean, that's kind of bold. And so far, have we seen anything about Abraham, Abram that would lead you to believe he was a warrior? Anything. Nothing. It just out of nowhere. This is really good for us as men to see, right? I've, I've used this phrase, we're the ones with strength. It's not to say that women don't have strength. They have all kinds of strength. Strength in ways that we would crumble. We know this is true, right? But men have strength. We're the ones that are supposed to kill things, destroy things, remake things, protect, you know, provide all of this stuff. That's the strength that we have. And we are supposed to be offering that to everyone around us so that they may flourish. That's our job, right? Now, here's the important part. Everyone around us should have some idea, some indication of our strength. Maybe even enough that there's a little, a little thread of fear that's underneath there, right? But they know even though, even though they know I could or should be a little bit afraid of this man's strength, they also know 
he would never use it against me. He only uses it for me, right? It is a little bit scary, but I know I'm safe. I'm just glad I'm not somebody on the outside. See what I'm saying? That strength is it's there. And we as men, we have to have some measure of strength. Now, does this mean that we're all going to be mighty warriors? No, it doesn't work like that. Not every man is the same, but like metaphorically, symbolically, something you can understand how, listen, we all have to have strength and be willing to offer that strength. And it has to be present in the lives of those around us so that there's some little part of them that can recognize, man, if that strength was ever used against me, that would be bad. I don't want that. But the comfort, I know that he would never do that, right? And when we talk about, what's the phrase? Toxic masculinity, right? What are we talking about? Men who are using their strength in the wrong way. They're using it against people instead of for people, right? And especially those closest to them and, you know, all that stuff. So it's a, this is a great image. So here you have Abram, who's never shown any signs of this particular kind of strength. But it's been there all along, right? And that's the same guy that stood up on top of a hill, mountain, whatever, and said, you know what? You choose. I'll take whatever's left right? Which is also a strength. That's a strength. I, I don't need to take advantage of my position as the leader to get what I want. I'm willing to let you have your best shot because I'm going to be fine, right? It's, it, these are such great images in these characters. He so, had a relationship with the Lord that gave him a level of courage maybe to take this on. Right. And use some of the expectations. Of yeah. God yeah. In terms of routing people and taking things from them and some things to leave alone. Yeah. And that's a great point. When you, us, any of us, when we're operating in our strength, how much more perfect is it when it's actually submitted in submission to Him? Right? How easy is it for it to become toxic when we don't have that leadership, that guidance? That's how it gets all messed up. So, yeah, he knows. Good, good point, Bernard. He's got God on his side. and It's great. This is great. You know, thinking about what Bernard just said, though, uh, it wasn't like when we read earlier about Abram and God said, you, you go here, you go there. There's nothing there that says God said, you go get Lot back. Right. So um, he was still acting out of what he knew was right. But, you know, because it'd be nice if every time we needed to make a decision, God just told us what to do. Right. But, you know, there's no indication that God really told him that you got to go do this. Right. I agree with you 100%. When we continue, we may get some indication that, well, maybe something like that did happen. We'll have to see. Not sure. we see what you think when we get there. But your point, 100% valid. 
hundred percent. It's, it's, it's different. And remember, we've seen it like with Noah. God spoke and then, man, there's a lot of text before God spoke again, right? Did Noah get everything right in between? What, you know, whatever. Did God speak? They just didn't tell us. What? So it, the same thing here. Very interesting. So good, good. What else do we got? Um, he has 318 men. So, I mean, if we're getting OCD, that's 319 total. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> um, and he's going after the four kings from the east. We've called them the act, right? And at this point, think about this. Abram has to find them. He's got to like catch up to them and find them. And he ends up going to the northern edge of Israel. That's where Dan is. So if you're looking at the map, if you've got Israel over here and Abram is somewhere here in the middle, he goes after them and he finds them up here at the northern edge of Israel. Okay? So he had to go pretty far just to go find them. All right. What else do we got? Uh, I guess we're moving on. Todd, have you read yet? Did you just do that one? All right. Yeah. So Bernard, verse 15. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. Okay. So, here we have, and, and you may recognize this military strategy because you've read other stories, right? And we've already talked about Gideon, whatever. But think about his strategy here. He divided his men, and what is he doing? He's having... One group of men come in from one side and they're raising all the ruckus and commotion and, and getting them fired up, okay? And did it say at night? Yeah, by night. So confusion, they can't see, all of that kind of stuff. And what, what are they expecting that group to do? Oh, oh, they're attacking us. We need to fall back a little bit, you know, try to get our bearings. Well, who's waiting behind them? The other half of the group, Right. So they're getting them from both sides. It's, it's a great military strategy, even today. I mean, it's a little harder to accomplish today just because everybody knows about stuff and we can see more things, whatever. But it's a great military strategy and it gets used throughout the scriptures. But you kind of get the idea that not everybody knows about it because it's so effective. I mean, if everybody really understood and was ready for it, that it would be different, right? So this is our first introduction to it. So it's a great strategy. That's what he uses to take them down. Now, uh, Abram isn't satisfied when he attacks them at Dan. He wants to continue running them down, right? So back to our map, you've got Israel over here and Dan is up here at the top what he's actually doing is chasing them a little bit to the north, but mostly to the east, getting over here to Syria, Damascus, around that area, okay? So he chases them, I don't know, probably in the neighborhood of 50, maybe to 100 miles, 50 to 100 miles, he's chasing these guys down, okay? And so eventually, of course, in the story, we know what happens. What you got there, Rick? 120 miles, somewhere right in there. Oh, 120 miles. There you go. Look at that. So uh, he's uh, 
probably, probably not satisfied with any sort of a victory. In fact, that's not even really his motivation that he wants to defeat these people. That's not the point. The point is, I want to get Lot back. And as we'll see, all these possessions, not just Lot, right? So, so that's more his point. You've taken something that is not yours. I'm taking it back. Justice. Again, using his strength. It's, it's a God attribute. Justice. I'm going to make this right, you know? So it's, it's, a, it's a cool image, cool picture. All right. Where are we at? Verse 16. Rick, you there? Just about. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. Right. So, I mean, the easy way to say it, Abram wins, right? And he brings back all kinds of stuff. These are the spoils of war. He takes, he gets back all the possessions that had been taken. So, I don't know. It sounds like everything from all of the battles that they had had. Remember I said they went through that big trek down the valley and a loop over in Israel. He got it all back, or at least that's the way it sounds. He got back a lot. And of course, that includes his possessions. And then listen to what it says. He got back all of the other women and the other people that had been taken. So earlier, the only thing they told us was that they took Lot. But apparently, they'd taken a bunch of other women, people, whatever. Right? So just good. Okay. So when I'm piecing together the image in my head... It's not always telling me everything I need to know when I need to know it. it you kind of have to put things back and like, remake that image, right? So all of this, everything that we've been talking about here today, do you remember when I told you Abram, Abram went through 10 tests? This was test number four, at least according to tradition. This is how it's, it's counted as test number four. How does he respond to Lot being stolen? Okay, so it's the battle of the kings. The first three tests, I don't know. We talked about it, and you don't have to come down really, really firm on any side, but I mean, it didn't exactly seem like he did a really good job of passing those tests, right? I mean, you could at least make some decent arguments that he failed, okay? They were a little sketchy. But remember, he had also brought Abram back from Egypt, set him up there in the middle of Israel. And remember, some of the things we were wondering about is, well, he was supposed to leave all of his family and his kindred. Why was Lot with him? But then what happens when he gets back from Egypt? They're separated. Lot's separated out. And, and it's almost as if God is going, okay, you know, these, <laughs> these first three tests, they're not really working out all that well. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring you back. We're going to start over, get Lot out of here. I'm going to give you another try. And so his first test since being brought back, since getting the reset, if you will, his first test is, uh-oh, somebody just stole Lot and defeated a bunch of your quote-unquote neighbors. What are you going to do? And he goes and rescues. So you could look at this and go, I don't know, it kind of seems like Abraham's starting good. He's, he's going to pass tests this time, right? So there's that. Um, 
Oh yeah. And the ways of the world at that time. Yeah. And probably his relationship with the Lord was strengthened during that time because of the fact that he says, okay, I ought to beat you up pretty bad here for what you've done, but we're going to forgive you this time. Yeah. I'll let you go. Yeah. And he does it again, I guess. Yeah. How much more proof do you need that Abraham showed promise than God sticking by him? Saying, you know what? Sure. Maybe you didn't pass your first three tests. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't, whatever. You know, we're not going to worry about that because I see you've got promise. I'm just going to keep testing you a little bit. There's another thing that we can learn from these verses. When God is testing you, what do we often do, right? In anything in life doesn't go our way, what do we do? Right. We get upset, we complain, we don't like it, whatever, right? We can look at this and go, wait a second. There's a big difference between, let's use two words, temptation and testing. When someone is coming against you to tempt you, their aim, their goal is to bring you down. They want you to fail. But when someone is testing you, they actually want you to succeed. Their, their goal is to raise you up, lift you up, build you up. Now, can you see how sometimes a temptation and a test can look an awful lot alike from our perspective? right? The one being tempted or tested, right? And we fight against it so quickly, so easily. And I think from stories like this, we can, we can learn, we can look and say, you know, I need to respond to that better. I need to look at those. And I know this always sounds like a Tony Robbins thing or something, but you need to look at those things more like an opportunity, right? Either God's okay with this, God's allowing this because he wants to teach me something, whatever, or maybe God doesn't have anything to do with it. It's just the enemy, enemy <laughs> trying to bust my chops, right? But either way, can you not come out of it stronger, better, more loyal, more faithful, more wise, right? So I think to some degree... Again, as men, we have to learn to, to face, and let's call them battles. That's the, the theme of today, right? We're doing, but we have to face those battles looking for victory, right? We usually look to escape. We're the guys falling in the pits or running into the hills, right? Ah, my life's not going good. I don't like it. Make it stop. We need to face it like a warrior. We need to look for victory victory in it, right? And this is, man, that's good not just for you. It's good for everyone in your life when you're doing that. And I think you'll find it becomes a little bit contagious when people see it. Who'll be more like that? You know, they won't tell you because 
afraid to make them look bad, but right? So it's just, it's a great picture, great image. All right, man, I really thought we were going to finish this chapter today. It's amazing. You guys get to talking and then, <laughs> yeah, maybe not so much. All right. What shall we do? Yeah, you know what? Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and do verse 17. We'll do one more and then we'll stop. Dave, can you read that? After his return from the defeat of Shedelor Mariah and the kings Perfect. who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Okay. All right, this is a good setup. We're going to skip the Melchizedek part for next week, till next week, right? But this part, so all of this battle has gone on, and after his victory, Abraham or Abram meets with the king of Sodom. And the thing that we don't know, out of all the people that they took, did they take any of these kings? Right? Are they there because Lot has rescued them, or are they there because they found out that there was rescue, or they're just coming to meet them? Right? It doesn't say it explicitly. We don't really know. But somehow, they're meeting together, and here's the thing. Do you ha does anybody know where the valley of Shaveh is? Or a guess? Good guess, but no. It's so funny. It's in what we think of as Jerusalem. The Kidron Valley and the Valley of Hinnom meet in Jerusalem, southern Jerusalem, and that valley of Shaveh is right there. So all of this battle goes on. Abram pursued him as far as he did, and then he came all the way back down to Jerusalem, and that's where he meets with these kings. That is such a strange picture. Why there, right? So that's one thing. Uh, it makes sense that Abram would travel this far uh, because he had settled at Mamre, which is near Hebron, which is a little bit south of Jerusalem. So there was nothing strange about Abram making the trek all the way back down this way. He was just going back to what was currently home, right? But how interesting that the kings decide to meet him there in this place. And of course, that's where we're going to meet Melchizedek. And he's the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, right? Kind of a cool picture. So we're going to use that as our stopping point. And I don't know, in a way it's good because I guess we go from war to, I don't know, covenants and blessings and stuff like that. So that'll be a good, good place to split. What do you got? Comments, questions? We're not going to get many war days in men's Bible study, so you have to take advantage of it when you got it. Just a question about uh, the Amorites and trying to think. You mentioned the descendants and then kind of think of who. Does that go back to Ham and Canaan? Uh, because in, in the chapter 10 genealogy, Canaan has descendants, the Canaanite border goes towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. 
Is that the people that the Amorites are related to? The uh, Edom, uh, Esau. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I, I guess I'd have to say no because Esau comes from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. I was just trying to. Yeah. To but my head around that. but we are in Canaan, mm-hmm. and so all of these people around. A whole bunch of them are, in fact, from Ham and Canaan, right? So, yes, but it just happens this particular group, not. Okay. Yeah. So I'm a bit confused about they came from Esau, but Esau's not on the picture yet. So, I mean, did they intermarry right. with Esau's descendants or something? Yeah. Okay. I, don't, I don't know how they, how they get that. But what they're saying is the Amorite... Uh, how do I say this? The Amorites of uh, the time when they enter the land, when they're wiping them out, those Amorites, they are connected with Esau. Now, you remember, who did Esau marry? It was outside the clan on purpose, and that's what made uh, Jacob, well, I'm sorry, uh, Isaac, so, and his mom, so upset, right? So that whole story, we're not there yet. But part of the, the problem, Jacob, yeah, he was kind of a, a weird dude, a little bit deceptive, you know, all those kind of things. We can't ignore that as if it didn't happen. But Esau, even though Isaac really liked him, he was a hunter and, you know, all that, it was great. But he was marrying women from around the country. And, and it's like, that, that was bad. It was really bad. And both he and his mom didn't like him. That, that plays an integral part in the story. It's, we kind of overlook it a lot, but that's a big deal. So when you talk about, well, how can they be the same people? Well, yeah, intermarriage, when, when he marries the women from around, I think that's probably where they get the connection. I don't know. Anybody else? Do you think Abram anticipated he must have trouble? sojourner in this area and we may have trouble someday. We need who wants to volunteer to be trained and ready to go to battle and also we have to have a battle plan. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. So yeah. We've got our weapons and our battle plan and yeah, be ready for pursuit. The A-team. The Abram team. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Building allies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's a really good point. It wasn't 318 men. It was 318 trained men. Right. Yeah. But somewhere down the line, before we ever knew that Abram was even capable of being a warrior, before there was ever a battle that needed to happen, they were already training. What? Why? How, how did that come about? And so I think you're, you're right on it, Philip. I mean, he was a sojourner in a land, and you got to be ready for everything. So war was, war was a likelihood. Well, probably just part of life. You know, yeah. To live in that time, you had to have trained fighting men. 
Yeah. And like, you know, today, you know, if we were going on a trip and going to write a story about it, we wouldn't probably stop and say we filled up with gas, you know. Right. Everybody knows you got to fill them up with gas, so we right. wouldn't write that in the story. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, natural part of life. Natural part of life. But again, you can read that and think, oh, how interesting historically. They had to have men ready to fight all the time. Or you could also go further and say, yeah, I don't know what kind of battles we face today. I mean, for different people, different parts of the world, it's, it's all different. But we all face battle. And so should we not be reading this story and going, you know, I need to be prepared for battle. I need to be trained. I need to make sure those around me that I care about are trained because they're going to face fill in the blank, all these different things, right? And so, and come on, we live in America, 2023, our lives, especially for the past, what, 50, 60, 70 years, something, talk about comfort and ease. I mean, it's just food. Nobody, do you realize how many people don't even know that like meat at the store comes from animals that were killed? You know what I'm saying? Their only conception is, no, you go to this place and you buy the stuff and then you eat it. They don't even know. You Wait, you got to plant stuff and grow it? What? A lot of people don't even know that. So we live in a time when it's very easy to become complacent and unready for any kind of battle, right? And so we look to these stories and it's like, no, this is wise in every age and in every place. And we need to learn from these stories, right? Most of the history that some think is foolish, Hmm. but it's going to repeat itself. Right. If you're not prepared, you're in trouble. Yeah. And why does history repeat itself? Because at the core, men never change. They never do. I mean, there's such a difference between us and people 2,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago. True. And yet, we are exactly the same, right? Inside, where it counts kind of stuff. It's, it's just the same. Uh, I was reading a Princeton book two or three weeks ago, a month ago, and, and, it, and it just a revelation. Of, you know, they were, a, a guy was a, a warrior, a fighter, and he was training, and, you know, and you got to get beat up a lot to, to learn to beat up. you got to get beat up. No pain, no gain. So he, so he was talking about, you know, you learn to take the pain. You know, you, you know when somebody punches you in the nose, you, you know, that hurt, but you got to go ahead and punch them back real fast or they're going to punch you again. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a fighter. <laughs> But, but it just, I, I just got to contemplating on that, but, but we've got so many preachers now that, that teach that God is love. It's yeah. all about God loving you and cuddling you up and holding them in his bosom and taking care of you. Right. But God also teaches you lesson. He tests you. And sometimes you get punched in the nose. Right. So in, that, in, that, in life, God's going to make you tough. He loves you. He's going to make you tough. Yeah. So he's going to punch you. Yeah. You know, he talks about the refiner's fire. Right. So, so instead of just react, oh, that hurt, you know, and then you cry about it for two or three weeks. Cry up, crawl so up hurt. in daddy's I'm lap. So yeah. hurt. 
Yeah. There's no use to cry. It's going to happen. Right. Be ready for it. Yeah. It's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. So that was just a revelation to me that, and you know, all you guys are probably smarter than I am, but it, you know, it's just, it's, it's, here it comes. Yeah. Be ready for it. Yeah. It's a good thing. Manhood has been under the attack in America for, well, almost as long as I just said it's been super easy living, right? But 50, 60, 70 years, man, it's been bad coming after men, trying to make them something less than men. But see, again, if it's, if it's done properly, if we have power and strength and aggression and right all, even destructive ability if we have all of those things under control submitted to god that's what we're here for <laughs> we don't have to apologize for that it's a good thing but it's also easy to get outside those bounds and for it to become a bad thing and we're the ones who have to watch that in ourselves and in each other, right? Dude, okay, you did not just build your son up. You just tore him down. You need to take a second to breathe and go try that one again, right? We need to be able to say stuff like that to each other, right? You let your strength be used against your own son. I know you didn't mean to do that, but now you need to fix that. You need to make it right. You need to let him see strength used properly so that he can use it properly, right? It's a, I don't know, it's a big deal. And what well, we, we spend all day talking about war. So in effect, we are in a war. Yeah, trying to somehow save or recover maleness, strength. It's a good thing. It's like loving a woman. You have to learn to love a woman. Yeah. 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 Okay. I know that we're starting a series coming up. It has something to do with love and dating, whatever. Probably you guys have heard it before. I don't know what's going to be said. So if I'm going against the grain, I apologize in advance. But I'm going to say this. Love is not an emotion. Period. You might talk about infatuation, and we can talk about feelings. I have great feelings toward my wife, okay? But that's not love. Love is what I do toward her. I love her through words and actions. And because I invest in her, I have feelings that that grow okay but those feelings are not love and it's the same with god god doesn't have well i shouldn't say he doesn't have i'm sure god has warm feelings we are in his image all of those things are real but when we say that god loves us we don't we shouldn't mean that he's up there feeling all sentimental and you know, lovey and wanting us to crawl up in his lap. No, God loves us because simple things. Sun comes up every day. Rain continues to fall. And not so simple things. You didn't have that car accident because 
you were two minutes late and you were mad about it, but I saved you from that trouble. Or you know what I'm saying? There's a bazillion ways that we never see, but God loves us actively. It's what he does toward us, right? And we, we have to get that figured out. You were talking about all the preachers and churches. They're all saying, you know, we just need to love one another. God loves us. You know, God is love, all that. Yeah, I'm not discounting or trying to diminish those feelings in any way. They're awesome. But we've confused it. We've confused it. So, again, pay attention to what comes from the pulpit. I'm sure, I'm sure that's great. But it's just it's a different thing. Anybody else? All right. All I can say is, go be men. <laughs>